Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for uh, helping guys like me and Lenny and Ian to uh, grow as preachers. I really appreciate that. You're serving us in that way, so thank you for that. Um, like Andrew said, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one back there. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. We're going to go from 7 through 11. I'm going to read the text in its entirety, and then we're going to dig into it. So 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to take the time to pray real quick as well. Uh, Father, I just ask that uh, you would send your spirit, help us understand your word, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, and that you would use this text to help us walk with you and in you until you come. In uh, Jesus' name, amen. So now with this text, it has two main parts. The first part, he says, the end of all things is at hand. And then he says, therefore, and then he gives us a list of instructions. So that means these instructions that Peter is giving us, they hinge on this first thing that he says, that the end of all things is at hand. So I'm going to spend the first meaty part of this sermon uh, talking about the end of all things is at hand, and then we'll talk about the instructions that he gives us in light of that truth. And as a side note, uh, my prayer for us is that you would be encouraged by this text, especially if you've ever wondered, what am I supposed to be doing as a believer? That, that you love Jesus, you know Jesus, he sets you free, he's changed you, you want to obey him, but you're not sure, what am I supposed to do? What is he calling me to? Now, this text, it's not comprehensive on, on the totality of the Christian life, but it provides a really good framework for what we are to be and what we are to do as believers. And now often, I know that some of us, when we are seeking God's direction or seeking God's calling, that we're looking for some subjective experience where we're in prayer and God speaks to us and, and we hear the voice of God. And I don't, don't get me wrong, that happens. But, but when you're seeking what God is calling you to, what God wants for you, it's, you can find it right here in the Bible. And so I think Peter has that here for us here today. So, but first, to understand these instructions, we have to understand the end of all things is at hand. What does Peter mean by this? So on some level, it's actually very straightforward what he means. He's saying that all things are coming to an end. That all things, everything we know, everything we see, the world as we know it, the universe as we know it, it's going to end. But I want to dig in further here because Peter has something very specific in mind here. It's not just this general ending that's going to happen where we don't know what's going to happen. He, he's very specific about what he's saying here. 
And first to understand that, we need to understand what the biblical view of history is. Now, the biblical view on history, it's much different than the prevailing view on history that we have around us here in America and Seattle in 2015. Uh, the prevailing view, and if you have this view, you can correct me if this is not your view, <laughs> um, is that history is the story of humanity, that humanity is the product of some cosmic probability that just happened to produce us, it happens to produce historical events, it happens to produce civilizations, technology, advances, that kings rise, kings fall, empires rise, empires fall, without much purpose or goal in it, that if there is any purpose in it, it's what the culture is defined, cultures change, these purposes change, these goals change. Those who are cynical might look around and say that what we see around us, what we see in history is just senseless madness. Uh, those who are pessimistic might say that it's going to end, but it's going to be us that destroys ourselves. Those who are more positive, they might say that, that humanity is on this journey where we're continually bettering ourselves, advancing ourselves, progressing ourselves to some greater destiny. But in the center of it, humanity is in the center, and that we are responsible to make sure our future is secure. And if there's any end to it, it's, it's not going to be uh, anything God does but it'll be some cosmic event that ends us, or it'll be us that ends us through climate change or whatever. Now, this is not an end that Peter is talking about. The Bible is a much different picture of history. That God has shown us, through the Bible, a much different picture of history. That history is the story of God. That God, he's eternal, he's not created, he's always existed, He's the author of everything we see, that everything we see around us, he made out of nothing. And that before he made even a single atom, that he had a purpose in mind. And that history, biblically speaking, it's the unfolding of this purpose. That history is and always has been moving towards this final goal that God has had in his mind since the very beginning. And we see this unfold through the storyline of the Bible. We're going to go on a quick tour through the story of the Bible. But it'll help us understand the end of all things is at hand here in Peter. So God makes everything. He makes the heavens. He makes the earth. God makes the first people. He makes Adam and Eve. Calls them very good. Adam and Eve live in perfect union with God, with each other. Satan enters the picture. He tempts Adam and Eve. They decide to rebel against God. They choose their own kingdom, their own ways, their own rules over God's kingdom, and everything changes. And this rebellion is called sin. It enters the world. Death enters the world. People then, people now, we inherit Adam and Eve's rebellion. We're born rebels and enemies of God without any way to save ourselves. That the earth is now cursed. It yields pain. It yields suffering. It yields disasters. But even in spite of this, since this did not stop, this purpose that God has had through history, that even then, after Adam and Eve sinned, he makes a promise that one was going to come who would crush Satan. And this is the first hint at this purpose he has had from the beginning. And God continues this purpose, that through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, the kings, the prophets. If you're not sure who I'm talking about there, these are people from the Old Testament. I would encourage you to read the Old Testament uh, the Old Testament can be very confusing, so if you're reading it, also ask lots of questions. Um, 
But these people, through these people, God has continued this purpose. And he hints even more what this purpose is. He says that one day there's going to be a king who comes to rescue all of his people. That there's going to be a day when all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. That people from all nations will worship God as king forever. That his kingdom would come, his law would be written on people's hearts, that he would fill people with his spirit, and they would worship him forever. And so God's people, they were waiting for this. They waited for this king, for this redemption, for this freedom, for God's kingdom to come. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And then over 2,000 years ago, everything changed with a baby. That God, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, he set aside his, his divine rights, he put on human flesh, and he came to earth as a baby, Jesus. And this Jesus, he was perfect, he did all right, no wrong, he performed signs to demonstrate he was God, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast out demons, he made the blind see. And that Jesus was this one who they had been waiting for. And when Jesus begins his ministry, he says something extremely important. So in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, some, he says something epic here, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's saying that the time is fulfilled, that God's kingdom that they've been waiting for has arrived. That everything they've been waiting for for thousands of years is here. So Jesus' first coming, it changed everything because God's kingdom came to earth. And God's kingdom is now here. So here, Jesus would continue accomplishing this purpose of God. Jesus, who was perfect, he was innocent, he was so gracious, he was so full of love. He went to a Roman cross and he died. He lived a life we couldn't live. He laid himself down to take the punishment for sins that we deserved. He paid the price for our sins that we might live. And when he did this, he said something else very important. That while he was hanging there on the cross, and as he was breathing his last breaths, he said, it is finished. And in saying it is finished, he's saying, my, my purpose for coming is finished. I have saved my people. I've fulfilled God's purposes. Satan is defeated. Sin is defeated. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, showing that he is this true king, that he has conquered death. So in Jesus' coming, in his life, in his death, on the cross, in his resurrection, he is the one God promised to his people. He's the one who accomplished forgiveness of sins. He made the way for all nations to be blessed and to worship God as king forever. So that God's purpose in history, it centers here on this event where Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose. And now these events, they were so significant that his followers thought that this was it, that this was the end. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1.
Now, Andrew's talked about this before, but the, 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 his followers are about to ask a question that I had seen in the past as something that was, that was a silly question or an ignorant question. But I think in light of what we've just heard, this is actually a very uh, good question we have for Jesus. So Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Jesus has risen, they're here around him. And it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they've seen all that Jesus has done. He's healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's died for their sins, he's risen. And they're like, it's here, the end is here, it's time, are you going to restore it? But Jesus responds with something interesting. And he tells them that time is coming. Look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus tells them that time is coming, this end is coming, this kingdom is coming, but it's not now. There's still work to do for my purpose to be complete. That the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses until the end of the earth. So Jesus then ascends up to heaven, he leaves his followers here on earth, and then shortly after Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit comes upon the early believers, Peter preaches to a crowd, thousands are saved, and the church begins. And that this church, these witnesses of Jesus, that continue delivering this message that Jesus has come, Jesus has died for our sins, that the kingdom is here. Repent, believe, join us. Come, come into this. It's happened. This is news. And now this is where Peter sits when he writes, the end of all things is at hand. He knows that he and the people he's writing to are in what the Bible calls, and even he calls, the last days. That Jesus has come, he's accomplished his purpose, Satan is defeated, death is defeated, sin is defeated, and now they sit, we sit, in this final period, where the church bears witness to Christ, we call all who would come to be saved, and then one day, that God alone has determined, the end will come, and God's final purpose will be realized. So now, what's going to happen at this end? We're here in this final period, the end is coming, what's going to happen? Peter actually talks about this frequently in his letters, and actually the entire New Testament talks about it a lot. We kind of stay away from it because the, the end times are kind of scary. And people have done a lot of weird things with them. But let's, let's take a tour around Peter's letters to see what's going to happen at this end. So first, chapter 1, verse 6. He's talking to them about their trials, but he's going to end this phrase with this phrase that's important. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, now listen to this part, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So the first thing we know about this end is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus talks about this himself in the Gospels multiple times, that he's coming back in glorious fashion. He's going to come on the clouds, and there's going to be no question about who it is or what he's here to do. Second thing, chapter 4, verse 5, this is what Lenny preached on last week. It says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They being the Gentiles in that context, but elsewhere we know everybody will give account to Jesus when he comes back. He's, going, he's coming to judge the world. Every deed, every word, everybody. He's going to judge the living and the dead. The believers and the non-believers. He describes it himself as lining up sheep on his right and goats on his left. And the, the sheep will go on to life with him forever. And the goats will go on to, to hell, eternal judgment forever. So Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming to judge. And now when you hear that he's coming to judge every deed that we've done, that can be that is and should be terrifying. But he has another thing to say in chapter 1 about this end. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, now here's the, here's the phrase again, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace that will be brought to you. Set your hope fully on this grace, that when you meet Jesus, you're going to be met with grace. That all sin you've ever done has been covered by his blood, and that he will tell you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Grace. If you don't know him, please, I beg you, the end is coming. Believe. Know this grace that he will give you. So now if we journey over to 2 Peter, we see a few more things about this end. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, he has this long uh, section about the day of the Lord that's going to come. So 3 verse 8 and 9 we see that God is not slow, but he desires that all would repent. But do not overlook this one fact, brothers, uh, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. It might seem slow. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came, and we've been in these last days for a long time. But he's not slow. And why is he being, quote, slow? but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That he has, has not been, he's been, quote, slow. He's taken this long time because he wanted you to be in his kingdom. He wants more and more people to repent and be in his kingdom. And again, if you, if you don't know him, come to him now. Moving on, we see another thing, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus says this as well, that it's coming like a thief in the night, that we don't know the day that it's going to come. There have been many people throughout history who have said they know the day Jesus is returning. If they say that, they are lying. <laughs> Nobody knows the day, not even Jesus, because the Father has fixed it by his own authority. 
And then last, 2 Peter 3, there are a few verses here, 7, 10, 13. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that are now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, that the earth, the heavens as we know it, will be burned with fire to create a new heavens and earth that we see in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That this world, as we know it, with all the sin, all the pain, all the suffering, will be gone. And we'll be in a new world full of righteousness, peace, shalom, no sin. So when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, it's this end that he has in mind. That Jesus has come, and now he's in, we're in his last days, he's building his church, and he's going to return to fully realize God's purpose in history. Do you think that changes your life, knowing this? that you're redeemed by God, you're waiting eagerly for Jesus to come back to bring you into his kingdom, that you're a member of Jesus' church, that as a member of Jesus' church, you're right in the middle of what God is doing in history. Does that change how we live? Peter thinks so. That's why he says, therefore, after the end of all things is at hand. Therefore. And he gives us two main things in light of this. First is prayer. We'll go to verse 7, chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So, he urges us to be self-controlled. Other translations say of, of sound mind or, or sound judgment. Uh, that we keep ourselves from sin, from foolishness. We live out of our renewed minds that God's given us to make godly decisions. We keep ourselves from distractions that make us forget that we're a part of God's kingdom. And also to be sober-minded, to keep your mind clear of anything that prevents you from thinking godly, pure thoughts, that we keep ourselves from substances and situations so that we can keep our mind sharp, and notice he doesn't just say, be self-controlled and sober-minded. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So he wants you in your life to be, be disciplined for prayer. Self-controlled for prayer, sober-minded for prayer. And now, I don't know about you, but for me, it wasn't immediately obvious why prayer and being disciplined for prayer is connected to the end of all things is at hand. What's the connection there? Um, I think there are a few things. I have three here. There's probably more. But one is during Jesus' ministry, when he was talking about his return and saying that it was going to come like a thief in the night, he would also say, be alert. Be watchful. Don't be asleep when I come. So part of this watchfulness and this alertness comes from praying to God, being with God, speaking to God. 
And so be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you may pray and be alert for Jesus' return. Uh, second, praying hastens Jesus' coming. Now I'm going to show you where I get that because that's pretty profound. Second uh, Peter again, chapter 3, 11 says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Listen to this. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So we are waiting for and we are hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, he doesn't mention prayer there, so where do I get the connection with prayer and hastening God's kingdom? I get that from where Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That part of our prayers is that God's kingdom would arrive. And I think that in some sense this is hastening his return. That, that God has set it up so that you and me as sinners and broken people participate in the coming of his kingdom through prayer. And then three, prayer and, and reading the word, they help you grow in the knowledge of Jesus, as Peter talks about in other, other places. And, and at the end is where he's coming back and we won't see in a mirror dimly anymore and we'll see him face to face Prayer helps us get to know this one we're going to be with. We want to recognize him when he comes. So the first exhortation, in light of the end of all things at hand, is be self-controlled, sober-minded, so that you may pray for the sake of your prayers. Second, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So he's given us this command about prayer. Now he's given us an even greater command. He says, above all, Jesus is coming back. The end of all things is at hand. You're members of his kingdom. God saved you from sin to life. What are you to do above all? Just keep loving one another earnestly. That God, he set you free from sin so that you can love. And that you can love earnestly, fervently, other translations say. That, that you set your mind and your life to love one another, to meet each other's needs, to serve each other. And this is a mark that you belong to Jesus and that you're waiting for him. This bears witness to Jesus in his life. He, he says that they will know, they being the watching world, will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Now, who is he talking about when he says one another? Peter's writing to churches in Asia, so, so the one another he has in mind are the people who are part of his churches. That for us here, the one another are other believers, and especially the people right here in this room. That if you look around, you look to your left, to your right, behind you, that these are the people God is calling you to love as members of his kingdom. Like I mentioned at the beginning, if you're wondering what God's calling you to, what he wants for you, he's calling you to love each other. And notice Peter also says, he says, keep loving one another. 
that, that you, this church, Anchor Church, is already loving one another very well. I know of a few things that, that happened just in the last month. And so, and that's only just the tip of the iceberg of what's happening here. And Peter's calling us to persevere in this way, to be earnest in it, to be fervent in this love until Jesus comes back. And then Peter continues with something confusing because Peter likes to say confusing things. Spirits in prison, what is that? Um, <laughs> so he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So now one thing I, I don't think he means here is that uh, he's talking about the truth that Jesus' love and Jesus' blood covers sins. That, those are true and we affirm that, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's, he's talking about something that happens in the Christian community. And he's likely referring to uh, a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 10, verse 12, where it says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. So in a community of hatred, and really in a community of the world, there's fighting, that, that when one sins against each other, there's, there's fighting, there's anger, there's bitterness, there's strife. But in a community of love, in a Christian community of love, sin doesn't take hold like that. That as Jesus' people, we know we're forgiven. We know we are sinners. And so when we love one another, we can overlook each other's sins, forgive each other's sins, and move on. That when we choose to love each other, that that covers sins that, that may have been done to us in the past by each other. So there's no harboring, there's no bitterness, there's no infighting in response to each other's sin. We know that God has shown us his grace through Jesus Christ and redeemed us. We know that we ourselves are sinners. And so there's grace, there's love, there's reconciliation in the church. So now Peter expands on, on what it means to love one another with some specifics. Uh, verse 9, he starts with hospitality. Verse 9, he says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And now, notice here, he's not just talking about general hospitality to all people, which Christians are to be generally hospitable people. He's talking about to each other again, to one another, to these people here. And this means welcome each other to our homes for meals. If someone needs a place to stay, they can stay, even for days or weeks if they need it. That, that all of our houses belong to each other, in a sense. And notice, too, he says to do this without grumbling. Uh, hospitality can be great cause for grumbling. Um, your schedule gets messed up. Your house gets messed up. You don't have as much privacy as you, as you once had. But he says to do it without grumbling. And now this, I think, especially in light of the end of all things at hand, this grumbling comes from a misunderstanding that we have our own kingdom. That we've forgotten that we belong to Jesus and his kingdom. And so knowing that, that you belong to Jesus and the kingdom and you're going to be with these people, with him forever and eternity, you can show hospitality to each other without grumbling. So hospitality is the first. The second main thing he talks about with this love for each other is using our gifts to serve each other. I loved that verse that we read earlier. I didn't know we were going to read that. That really 
help solidify what Peter's saying here. Uh, 4 verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So that as a believer, God has given you gifts. He's given you natural gifts when he made you. He's given you supernatural gifts through his spirit when he saved you. And he's called you to steward these gifts. Well, not, not to use it to serve yourself or to build your own kingdom or to acquire possessions or even to just hoard it for yourself and not use it. But he's called you to employ them or use them to serve other believers, serve one another, serve the people here around you. And now I want to call attention to the words each here and varied grace. Each is important that each one of you who's in Christ, has gifts. He hasn't left any of this out. That he has a role for everybody in the church. There's not some A team and B team or varsity and junior varsity. It's that he's given each one of us gifts. And second, varied grace. That, that not all of the gifts we have are the same. That God in his wisdom has given us each different gifts so that we can meet each other's needs, that where one is weak, the other can be strong. And Paul, he uses a body analogy for this, that the church is a body and it's made up of many members, like the hand and the feet and the eye. A body doesn't function when it's all eyes or when it's all hands. You need all of the parts for it to function. So he's given us varied grace to function as a body. And now I want to say in the side here that, that many of us, many may have come from places where texts like this they get reduced to using your gifts in some formal capacity, some formal title, or some formal program, where if you take some spiritual gift survey and then you say, oh, you have hospitality gifts, be part of the hospitality team. Or, oh, you have gifts with children, do children's ministry. Um, I don't want to denigrate those things because those things are, children's ministry, hospitality team are beautiful ways we serve each other. I don't want to denigrate those. But Peter has much more in mind here it's that we're serving each other in life. That when we, when we have needs, we can meet each other's needs. So yes, I affirm uh, formal positions in the church to, get, to have the church function, but it's much more than that. It's a community of people using their gifts to love and serve each other in everyday life. So if somebody needs rent paid, you can pay their rent. If somebody needs help moving, you help them move. You can make a list forever of, of different needs that we can meet for each other. So now Peter gets more specific with the gifts in verse 11. He says, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So speaks, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. That some, some gifts, some ways God has wired us are more on the speaking side. And that's not just people like me up here preaching. Or, or teachers. It's, it's even people who encourage with the word, or exhort each other, or even an evangelist. That when you speak as a believer, when you're serving each other, you speak as if you're speaking oracles of God. That what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in the Bible, and what he has given us. It's not that everything you say as a Christian comes from God. That's definitely not true. <laughs> um, 
but that if you're going to speak and you're going to serve one another with these gifts, speak as if you're speaking on behalf of God and of these two sets. And second, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So there are other gifts that are more helps-oriented, serving, meeting needs, getting to work. That's hard. And that can be really exhausting. And so he says, do it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You can't do it yourself by your, your own strength. You need God to give you that strength. So you do it by the strength that God supplies. So the end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Love one another earnestly. We love each other by showing hospitality, by using our gifts to serve each other. And Peter's going to wrap us up with this beautiful picture of why we do all of this. The end of verse 11. It says that in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That this serving you're doing, this, this speaking you're doing, this hospitality you're doing, they're all aimed not for your own glory, not for yourself, but for God's glory. Through Jesus Christ. That this is what you were made for. This is what you were saved for. This is to glorify God with your whole being. To present your bodies as living sacrifices, as Rogan says. And then notice Peter, Peter says this phrase, through Jesus Christ, that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. That when you serve each other, when you love each other, these happen because Jesus has set you free through his cross and his resurrection. He's given you a new heart, a new mind, free to love and serve and give. So this glorifying God comes through him and the new life he's given you. It's not you and yourself doing it. It's Jesus doing it and what he's done in your heart. So he's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's ruling and reigning right now. He's the king of kings. He's going to return to consummate his kingdom. And so it's no wonder that he closes with these words. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That Jesus brought his kingdom, he's going to bring his kingdom in its fullness. He, all glory and dominion already belong to him, and we're waiting for his return. And so let's live like we're waiting for that return. I'm going to pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for including us in your plans. We don't deserve that, Lord. We are sinners. We deserve wrath and judgment. We deserve to be those goats, Lord, but you've made us sheep through your blood and your resurrection. Fill us with your spirit to love one another, use our gifts to serve one another, that you may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>